0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
1: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with our second episode about the story of Kirk Allen, or at least based on the story of Kirk Allen.
0: Yeah, the story of Kirk Allen. Being a recurring element, but ultimately we're talking about, uh, you know, imagination. We're talking about daydreams. We're talking about how we try to objectively understand the universe uh, even as more subjective narratives are presented to us, narratives like UFOs or demons, etc.,
1: Or traveling into the future and being a space lord. Exactly. Now, if you haven't heard the last episode, you should probably go and check that one out first where we tell the whole story of Kirk Allen. We're going to be following up on some of the threads from it in this one and pursuing some research on the idea of maladaptive daydreaming.
0: Yeah, because the idea with Kirk Allen is that Essentially, the short version is you had a guy with a, uh, uh, with a very important job, like an, a nuclear physicist for a government institution that was daydreaming so much that it became a problem it, that his employer said, we want you to go talk to a professional about this.
1: Now, the story goes, at least as it's presented by his therapist, who is writing later and fictionalizing elements of the story both to protect the identity of the patient and as far as we know, maybe, maybe not also embellishing the story to make it a better story. We don't know. But the story goes that – Kirk Allen, the pseudonym for this patient, that he was referred to Robert Lindener, the the therapist, and that Lindener became so involved in Kirk Allen's beliefs that he could travel into the future in, in his mind and be a space lord and go from planet to planet and explore all these technologies and galactic civilizations, that he got so involved in that that he started to believe it himself. And then it took Kirk Allen admitting that he made the whole thing up and didn't actually believe any of it to snap the therapist out of believing in the delusion
0: and it makes for a great story like it illustrates like the, the power the um, contagious uh, nature of, um, of, of, of a compelling fiction.
1: Exactly. But today we wanted to explore this other element of it. So if we go with the story and we assume that Kirk Allen never did believe any of what he was saying, he never actually believed he was a space lord, he just spent a lot of time fantasizing about it, though mm-hmm. he could tell the difference between this fantasy and reality. What would that situation be? Imagine you've got this guy, he's doing important nuclear physics or whatever other kind of government research and they can't keep him on Task because he's always thinking about how he's going to finish his paper on the hyperdrive thruster that'll get him to Tau Seti Nine or whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the 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 cool thing about all this, and I think ultimately the fascinating part about it is that we, I think we can all relate on some level to the you know the the attractive power of daydreaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, we 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 all do it, uh, and certainly we all did it when we were children. Uh, I mean, I I've always had a pretty active imagination as a kid i was i was content to pace around the backyard i would generally have a red or a green rubber band in my hand and i would just daydream a a litany of uh, imagined worlds inspired you know by typical things that are going to inspire a kid you know the tv shows movies cartoons and action figures that sort of thing and uh, And I think everybody in my family probably thought I was a little bit weird because of it, but they you know they tolerated it uh <laughs> if only so they could continue to make make fun of me uh as an adult and um you know then to, to their to everyone's credit, they encouraged my creative activities later on in life that employed much of the same energy just without the rubber band and all the pacing <laughs> um I guess maybe I still do some of the pacing, but oh, Robert, uh, <laughs> you do the pacing. Have you not noticed? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, you know it's it's good for one to get up um, all the time uh, mm-hmm. during work. Not trying to call you out. I pace too. <laughs> well, like for well, one thing I do now is I uh, I do a lot of swimming, and while I'm swimming. I am inevitably doing some form of imaginative thought, some sort of daydreaming. I'm, I'm thinking about, say, uh, you know, the, the, the fiction podcast that uh, I'm putting together uh, here for How Stuff Works and sort of plotting that out. Uh, it's and it's all sort of an experiment in like constructive daydreaming, right? Uh, if I'm lucky enough to visit a beach, uh, that's the kind of thing that occupies my mind on long walks. Like I, I, I love those times in my life when I'm able to not... Worry about the future, or, you know, or, or or you know, hang up over the past, and instead just daydream about something uh, completely different.
1: Well, as I've said recently on the show, I think narrative is a sacred retreat, but it's not just a sacred retreat when you're reading the narratives of others. It's certainly a sacred retreat when you're composing your own.
0: Yeah, Now, I have to say that I'm I'm fortunate to have outlets for my creativity, and uh, and I'm also very fortunate that daydreaming and imagination doesn 't negatively impact my life uh, at, at least currently, uh, and not everyone though can make these claims yeah that 's a lot
1: of what we 're going to be focusing on today is like when 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 it crosses that line when daydreaming goes over the line and becomes something not uh, not so positive but more destructive to people 's lives. You know, in thinking about my own childhood, I can specifically remember the process of trying to prolong or re enter dreams that I had exited by waking up. Mm. Did you ever have this experience? I I remember doing that. I remember in particular this one dream I had where I found a tunnel in my closet, and crawling through the tunnel, it went to a beach. Where there was a girl there who was a friend of mine and she could turn into a fish, I think, or a dolphin (laughs) or a cat. Uh, But I could also in this dream swing around on tree branches by using a whip like Indiana Jones. And that was just the coolest thing ever because I loved Indiana Jones and I
0: especially loved the swinging action. That sounds amazing. That that reminds me of how I once had a rocketeer dream. Mm Mm-hmm. Only once did I have this dream where I was flying with the Rocketeers jetpack. Uh-huh. And it was just so beautiful. It was just so breathtaking. And I've never had that dream again.
1: Yeah. Uh, I remember this just being an overwhelmingly fun dream. I had a Morphin' <laughs> friend and I could swing around in tree branches like like Indiana Jones. And for some reason, it, it was just so fun that when I woke up, I was like, oh, I've got to get back there. Yeah. And I tried to reenter it. But I I couldn't do it. I tried to go back to sleep again and dream the same dream, but I couldn't make myself. And I remember trying really hard to imagine having the same dream again while I was awake, but I couldn't really do that either, at least not with the same intensity. And I know this wasn't the only time I tried to recreate a dream state while I was awake. This is just one really vivid one that I remember. And I think this impulse to try so hard to imagine myself back into a dream Sort of is part of what led me to become interested in fiction writing because while dreams always fade very quickly in memory, even very vivid ones tend to if you don't talk about them or write them down after you wake up. Uh, imaginary scenarios coded down in writing those are permanent, and you can re-enter them with full fidelity at any time.
0: You know, your story reminds me a lot of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's uh, the the Dream Quest of Unknown Caddath. I don't know that uh, one. It's it's a wonderful uh, and imaginative tale, very unlike most of his. It's one of his dream stories, so it's 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 more fantasy than horror, though it has you know horror elements for sure. But the basic idea is that uh, a dreamer, a man, dreams a dream so beautiful uh, that the 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 gods, the elder beings, deny it to him, and he has to go on a quest to try and reclaim that dream. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Is it beautiful or or sad and melancholy that that's so much of what life is is not not necessarily chasing a new experience that you haven't had but trying to recapture a perfect experience you remember?
0: Yeah, it's true. It kind of gets to the heart of the um, the power of nostalgia, right? Yeah, you know, in our previous episode, we uh, we talked a good uh, good deal about uh, Carl Sagan's "The Demon Haunted World" mm-hmm. um, because that was the context in which right. we read this original story
1: right. about Kirk Allen.
0: Yeah, and uh, and and Sagan has a, a wonderful quote here, just about fantasy and reality, that I wanted to read. He says, "Quote." Out of all these contending propensities and child-rearing practices, some people emerge with an intact ability to fantasize and a history extending well into adulthood of confabulation. Others grow up believing that everyone who doesn't know the difference between reality and fantasy is crazy. Most of us are somewhere in between. That's a good point. I mean,
1: I – so obviously somebody who is – uh, too wrapped up in their in their fantasies in their own head, that person is obviously going to be having trouble. Mm-hmm. And when you en- you encounter somebody like that, you can often recognize it. But I think equally, you don't trust somebody at the far opposite end of the spectrum who just has no tolerance for <laughs> imagination. You know, you, you yeah. Sometimes meet people like
0: this. Oh yeah, I saw a guy at a it was a, a tiki bar in uh, in Hawaii and he was ordering a drink probably a mai tai or something but he had specific um uh, uh, directions uh, for the uh, the server he said he said bring me one of these but no umbrellas Uh, no fancy mug just make you know (laughs) basically make this drink as boring as possible no fun for me no umbrellas like
1: (laughs) i refuse to
0: pretend that there's a tiny man living on the surface (laughs) of my drink that needs shade from the sun exactly it's like why are you even here if you're if you're not here to engage in in funny umbrella drinks
1: that's a tiki bar heretic right there
0: (laughs) but let's come back to just the uh, the subject of daydreaming and creativity
1: Robert, you know who had some interesting thoughts about daydreaming and creativity? Who? Good old Sigmund Freud. Oh, I bet he did. Dr. Joy. <laughs> so he talked about this in a 1907 essay called Creative Writers and Daydreaming. And I just want to preempt, please do not take this discussion as an endorsement in general of Freudianism. While Freud is, of course, a very important figure to read in the history of ideas, a lot of his influence on psychology has given way to much more you know, rigorous, more explicitly science-based practices. I think these days Freud is more worth reading in the vein of thinking about him as a kind of like philosopher Mm. or something. Uh, But so Freud starts with one of those great questions that we might sometimes think of as too simple or too fundamental to actually ask out loud. Though, Robert, you might have heard this one before. Somebody knows you write fiction or they read one of your stories and they ask you, Robert, where do you get your ideas? How do you think up what to get the characters to say and to do? Have you ever been asked this? Uh, Yeah, I've been asked versions of this before. I've been asked this too. I I was actually asked it fairly recently and it's always struck me as a bizarre question because I thought – I don't know. I would think the answer is obvious. It's like I get ideas by using my imagination and imagining what the character would do. But the fact that some people end up asking this question of other people indicates that obviously not everybody has the same propensity for imagining fictional characters and places and scenarios and all that. So to some people, it comes more naturally than it does to others.
0: I mean I'm always reminded of uh, the the, the subject of aphantasia, the idea that not everyone can form mental images, Mm -hmm. which doesn't directly relate to what we're talking about here. But it's a reminder of just how different our brains can be. So I can you know see why someone might not initially grasp how an imagined character uh, comes to speak or act. Uh, and they might find it harder still to understand how these fictional characters that people dream up may well think or act in ways that the uh, imagineer does not expect.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean one of the things I notice in writing is that the process of creativity, at least for me, is very highly uh, – shaped by the act of recording the creative process mm-hmm. so it's like uh, writing a story is very different than just trying to think out a story in my head once oh, yeah. once it turns into words then you realize oh all this has got to change
0: yeah I, I, I often feel like I have Two uh, processes that I'm working with. One is that, that daydreaming while I'm uh, swimming laps or whatever. But then there's the process of actually writing things and things may change drastically uh, uh, dep- depending on the demands of that process.
1: Just to point out quickly, also before we move on, you mentioned the idea that not everybody can form images in their head as one possible uh, factor affecting whether people can compose fiction. But we've heard from people who are fiction writers who have a fantasy. Oh yeah, no, no,
0: yeah, I, I don't, uh, I, I bring it up more as just an, an, an example of how our brains are different. Oh, exactly. Not that yeah. it would n- would impact. Uh, it would change. It would change the way one composes fiction. I think. Oh sure. Uh, yeah. But. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly someone with fantasia can and and they do write fiction. They do uh, uh, come up with fabulous ideas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we 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 often fall into that trap of thinking that everyone has a brain more or less like mine. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's you know maybe it's. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it, maybe it's more powerful than mine or maybe it's not as finely tuned as mine, but all our brains are basically the same. And, and an example like a fantasia just reminds you, uh, no, this is not the case at all.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. So Freud began by observing this idea that not all brains are the same and that not all brains are the same in terms of ability to be creative, to come up with creative stories. And specifically for the purpose of this conversation, we are talking about creativity in terms of like making up stories, not the more generalized idea of creativity
0: right which can well uh, and does entail things that are are not like uh you know literature major creativity i mean certainly there is creativity within science there's creativity within programming etc
1: there's creativity in uh, getting a piece of meat out of a cage trap. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but no, so we're talking about like coming up with ideas, like cr- creative storytelling and stuff. So so Freud says, you know, even non-creative people do have some experience with the thinking of creative writers. Even if you're one of these people who asks, how do you come up with your ideas? How do you know what the characters should do? These people, Freud says – do have experience with that because it's in the imagination-based play of their childhood. Think back on your childhood. What was it like to play pretend? And he writes, quote, Might we not say that every child at play behaves like a creative writer in that he creates a world of his own or rather rearranges the things of his world in a new way which pleases him? It would be wrong to think he does not take the world seriously. On the contrary, he takes his play very seriously and he expends large amounts of emotion on it. The opposite of play is not what is serious but what is real.
0: Might we not say that every creative writer is a giant baby <laughs> i'm I, I'm kidding
1: well i I agree with that last part of what Freud says because play play is a departure from constraints, not a departure from stakes. There's nothing in the world more serious and important than what happens in a child's
0: game. I'm oh, sure yeah. you know from experience yeah, I mean, if the floor is lava, the floor is lava, yeah. Though I have to say, play is definitely a topic that demands its own episode at some point. I mean, there's so much going on when a child plays, even when an adult engages in play. And then, of course, we have other mammals that engage in play as well, especially um, when they're young. Totally true. So Freud says that
1: the creative writer just extends this type of play into adulthood and then uses the help of writing to record the play. Otherwise, the process is very similar. The creative writer creates a world of fantasy – and then takes it very seriously by investing huge amounts of genuine emotion into it, but keeps it separated sharply from the constraints of reality. So what's happening here? Why does the daydreamer or the fiction writer do this? You know, why does the the play in the imagination happen? And Freud notes something. He says, what's common to almost every single work of fiction?
0: Well, we got to have a hero, right? Exactly. Like the song says,
1: we need a hero. Right. I'm holding out for a hero for Freudian reasons. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now, this obviously – there's all kinds of fiction out there in the world today. There's experimental fiction and fiction that breaks every rule in the book, right? Mm -hmm. But most fiction still does abide by this. You've got to have a hero around which the interest of the story is centered and to which the author wishes to engender the audience's sympathies. And another thing he points out is that the hero is, by necessity of the plot, invulnerable. The reader can always trust that the hero will not be killed in chapter two or else there would be no
0: story. Or at least that's what it's like as an adult. I feel like anytime I get my son to watch – anytime we introduce him to a new film Mm -hmm. – he does not realize that the, the the main character is going to make it to the end of a children's film man like it, he, i wish i could go back to that that's amazing i know it's a, it's at once uh, amazing and frustrating because on one hand it's like wow he is experiencing this film with such raw uh you know vulnerability mm-hmm. and it, the other and the on the other side it's like i just want you to be able to watch moana <laughs> and uh and and with the with the family, we just want to make it to the end of this movie. it's just a disney princess movie i We should be able to handle it. don't you dare take that magic away from him that No
1: that's a beautiful thing. my yeah. like, God, I can't believe it. I remember what that was like mm-hmm. back before I understood all of the like cliches of story structure when every when every narrative was a radical surprise to me, yeah. Uh, Things aren't quite like that anymore and I I wish I could return to that mind state. But anyway, sorry, going back to Freud. So Freud notices that the hero is always invulnerable by necessity of the plot and also the hero enjoys unrealistic good fortune in like love and romance. So Freud writes, quote, Through this revealing characteristic of invulnerability, we can immediately recognize his majesty the ego – the hero alike of every daydream and every
0: story. It's probably telling about the kind of fiction I read, but I can't remember the last time I read something where the uh, protagonist had great fortune in love and romance. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like they're mostly having a pretty bad time. Well, I think if you take the long view,
1: okay, right, when the stories uh, resolve, there are a lot of stories where people go through a lot of tragedy and then in the end, the, everything comes out Right.
0: All right, I'll get back to you on that. I'm going to do a full cataloging of of recent reads for that. What's your Freudian analysis of
1: the the R. Scott Baker books?
0: Uh, Everybody has a pretty tough time with relationships, for starters. Something about death drive, maybe? Maybe.
1: (laughs) Anyway, so ultimately, Freud gets Freudian, right? He says that both the daydream and the act of creative writing, which are really sort of one and the same thing, realized through different means. He says these are the result of uh, unconscious memories, which give rise to an unfulfilled wish, and the wish is then fulfilled through the daydream or the act of creative writing, but in a way that is tempered by the social and moral restraints imposed by society. This obviously is, you know, classic Freudian kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to give any credence to this repressed childhood memory part, which is probably nonsense, to appreciate there may be some insight in the earlier parts about drawing this connection between the creative process and what's going on in daydreaming.
0: Oh, by the way, if anyone would want uh, anyone wants like a, a a deeper exploration of like early childhood trauma and Freudian ideas, uh, there's an older episode of stuff to blow your mind about the work work of H.R. Giger what? and some Freudian uh, explanations for his uh, his visual style. Was Giger a Freudian? Uh, I'm not. I I don't think he was quite a Freudian, but uh, at least one major commentator on his work was, and, oh, and okay. pointed to a lot. I mean, basically, the, the 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 death and birth imagery, uh, that, that that weird uh, you know uh, biomechanical synthesis of things that are both uh, vibrantly alive and just uh, unredeemably dead. Hmm interesting
1: you know i can actually see a a, a redemptive arc of, of freudianism maybe not so much as a uh as the best tool for, for psychology, but maybe as like a literary and artistic criticism school.
0: Well, yeah, like it comes back to what you said earlier
1: about Freud being perhaps more useful today if you think of him as a philosopher. And I, and I do think there's something to his insight here, like drawing this connection between daydreaming and the creative impulse uh, in order and, – and, and appreciating that the story-spinning impulse, whether it's in creative writing or simple daydreaming, is psychologically important. And it does in many cases fill some psychological need and provide some psychological benefit. But as we're exploring today, it can spill over into territory that's clearly not beneficial, uh, such as in the case of Kirk Allen, like we were talking about earlier, where it was interfering with his work enough that his superiors got in touch with Lindner, uh, or in many cases of what has come to be known as maladaptive daydreaming. And we will explore that more when we come back from a break.
0: All right, we're back. So maladaptive maladaptive daydreaming. It, uh, it it seems pretty obvious, right? Daydreaming that is uh that is, uh, that is maladaptive, that is, that is probably not having a good influence on your life. Things are out of balance because of your daydreaming.
1: Right. It's a term coined by the Israeli clinical psychologist Eli Sommer. And Sommer defines the term to mean, quote, extensive fantasy activity that replaces human interaction and or interferes with academic, interpersonal, or vocational functioning. So essentially it is fantasizing that interferes with your life. And there's actually been kind of a renaissance of attention to this subject just in the past couple of years.
0: Yeah, there's a. In, in particular, there's a there's an excellent episode of the NPR podcast Invisibilia. Uh, have you listened to, to Invisibilia? No, I haven't. Well, I listened to a little clip from this episode, but that's uh, all. Yeah, it's a wonderful series, and there's one episode in particular that discusses the story of a 49 year old suburban mother who they refer to as M, whose rich inner world becomes a secret addiction that she keeps from her family. So she, she so it's not just that she's escaping into her, her daydreams, you know, while she's driving to work or while she's swimming laps or what have you. Uh, no, she's making up excuses and cover stories to go off and dream in this world. Right. So – so this is an adult living a mostly normal
1: life, but she engages in elaborate fantasies about space adventures and saving the Earth and getting sucked into a black hole and all this. And she's got fictional companions who are her uh, her fictional friends. And she sometimes does this for multiple hours a day. And there's one part that I, I found very moving where she mentions – One thing about these fantasy worlds is that you know you're going to be understood in them because all the characters are you.
0: Oh, wow. On one hand, that's beautiful. But then I also – I think of like characters that I've created and I feel like most of them probably would not tolerate me. So I don't know if they (laughs) really would understand me or not. You need to create more sympathetic
1: characters. Probably
0: so. Probably so.
1: So you can hear just from that that, you know, that she, she can go to this place to be understood. So it obviously serves some purpose for her. You know, it, it helps her cope and it helps her feel better in a way. But it also, you know, she wonders if this is doing more harm than good in her life, right? Because if, if you have to spend all this time in secret doing this thing that you keep secret from your family, I mean, th- this is generally not healthy behavior. And it's going to lead to a lot of negative effects. So what does it mean for daydreaming to become a problem, a real problem on the level of a disorder that people would want to seek professional help to cure? Robert, I don't know if you share this bias, but I feel like in reading about this subject, one of the things that's been really hard for me to get around is a bias I have to think about daydreaming as a just inherently very good and admirable thing –
0: yeah, I agree because I, for one, am a daydream believer. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to always side with the daydreamers. I was just looking at a meme on the internet
1: that was, it like has a unicorn on it and it says, don't quit your daydream. <laughs> but, I mean, and that's supposed to be a whimsical but encouraging thing to say. Like I associate daydreaming with the character trait of imagination, uh, which most of us view as a good thing. I certainly do. And think about this. Robert, imagine you're picking up a new novel and there's a young character in the story who's introduced as always daydreaming, daydreaming through classes in school or something. Do you expect this character to
0: turn out to be a hero or a villain? I'd say they are either the hero – or they're going about to be tragically transformed into the villain. <laughs> or yeah. they're just a, an introductory character that's going to be killed by a villainous force uh, before we move on to the actual protagonist. Well, no matter what, you're, they're sympathetic at this point. Oh, right? yes, definitely. Day, daydreaminess
1: is an inherently sympathetic trait. But I think this is because we usually think about it in several contexts. Number one, it's primarily an activity of children and the young. Would you agree with that?
0: Yes. It, it, if, if nothing else, it is often seen as you know, sort of a, a childlike uh, quality, right? Yeah.
1: Number two, I'd say it's usually done in a positive sense of aspiration and ambition. Like in fictional narratives, daydreaming about a different kind of life is often foreshadowing that that character will actually later get to do those things that they daydreamed about. Number 3, at least in fiction it's usually grounded within an otherwise functional set of relationships and behavior patterns. It's not usually presented as something that keeps people from doing what's right or having relationships.
0: Right, their daydreaming is their escape from their uh, f- from from their daily troubles. Yeah, and th- that's
1: the fourth part. The fourth part is that it's usually brought about by unfair external constraints. Like a child is in an intellectually deadening grammar class and it and it causes that child, let's say it's our young heroine, to sit there dreaming about, you know, shooting a bow off the back of a horse or about space adventures because she's in this horribly boring mind-numbing scenario. I certainly feel all of this in general and so this is – this episode is certainly not to cast a negative light on all forms of daydreaming because there are clearly lots of cases where daydreaming is great. But there are also plenty of cases we've come to understand where daydreaming goes beyond a harmless exercise of imagination and it becomes a destructive obsession causing harm to the dreamer and to the people around them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd say if daydreaming prevents one from being present when one should be present or when one wishes to be present, then it could certainly be seen as a problem. You know, I think it's one of those uh, it it could be viewed as one of those chains of iron, chains of gold situations, right? (laughs) Like if you're not present with a loved one due to worries over past or future events, that's one thing. But isn't it still just as bad as if you're half zoning out during a conversation uh, with a loved one because there's a space battle going on in your head? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a fantasy, much in the same way that many of our worries are ultimately fantasies about things going wrong.
1: Yeah, that's that's a form of daydreaming
0: as well. Yeah, coupled with say, fantasies about say winning the lottery or finding this is one I still do all the time i think it's from from watching various like kidnapping movies but I'll think, what if I, I happen upon a garbage can and there's like a, uh, a like a drop off of money in the garbage, yeah. and then I get to take off with the money. And not, of course, I won't be killed by the hitmen or the kidnappers or what have you. Uh, but surely I'll get away with the the money I just found in the trash can. But it's a stupid fantasy that's still like uh, you know I don't dwell on it, but it still flies through my head every now and then, two or three times a week tops. <laughs> You find yourself checking garbage cans sometimes. I mean, I don't actually dig in them, but I, you know, I don't go looking for the money. But for some reason, kind of this, lean and peek. <laughs> yeah, in, a, in a sense, like this, just this stupid fantasy will 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 rear its head for just a moment uh, w- without me even, uh, you know, really thinking about it.
1: One thing I find is that obviously
0: media influences what kinds of things
1: we daydream about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you notice a lot of people, including yourself, during say the late 2000s when zombie movies were everywhere, Mm -hmm. constantly thinking about the best place to get to defend from
0: a zombie attack? Oh, yeah. I mean that just – that falls into sort of – yeah, worst-case uh, disaster fantasizing. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'd want to be on top of that
1: building right mm-hmm. there. And here's what I'd want to have with me. And <laughs> Mercifully, the zombie craze has, uh, has somewhat died down. I think people are thinking about that kind of thing less. I'm still wondering... Freudian explanations to the side. Like, why do we do that? What's going on in our brains when we daydream? Like, so you're just hanging out, maybe waiting to meet a friend or something like that. And then you start thinking like, huh, what would be the best building around here to defend from a zombie attack? What's, what's going on in your brain then?
0: Well, this actually brings us back to something we've discussed in the show uh, plenty of times before, the default mode network. I was looking at a 2017 University of Cambridge study that uh, found that the the brain network previously associated with daydreaming, the, the default mode network, also seemed to play a role, uh, an important role in allowing us to perform tasks on autopilot. Hmm, autopilot. So like. When you
1: are, say, uncon- that like highway hypnosis kind of thing?
0: Yeah, or I'm yeah loading the dishwasher, you know, yeah. or taking, uh, taking clothes to the, the – taking the laundry to the washing machine, that sort of thing. Yeah. Things you've done so many times that you just kind of zone out and you're thinking about space battles or the lottery or what have you. Um, the, the researchers here were also very interested in this because abnormal activity in the default mode network has been linked to an array of disorders including – Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and disorders of consciousness. And this, this study in particular found that the default mode network plays an important role in allowing us to switch to autopilot once we are familiar with a task. Hmm. So it, it seems fitting that the default mode network should emerge again in an episode on daydreaming. Uh, we've discussed it quite a bit in the past as, as, as this is where we find so much of the worry and anxiety that we seek to escape through flow states, um, you know, such as a creative activity like creative writing or, or uh, wood carving or yoga or anything like, like this, um, as well as through meditation or, you know, some other kind of meditative activity. The default mode network activity is also linked to, to difficulty in sleeping in new environments. Oh, you know, it's just kind totally of— Totally
1: find this to be true.
0: Yeah. So you have just like this heightened narrative of things that have gone wrong and things that might go wrong. And I feel like myself especially, so much of my, my life comes down to trying to, to turn that that the volume down on that network.
1: Yeah. You never get a good night's sleep the first time you're somewhere new.
0: Yeah. Furthermore, uh, Daniel Kahneman proposed in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that we use two systems to make decisions. A rational system for calculated decisions and a fast system for intuitive decisions. And this Cambridge study argued that it's the latter system, the fast system that may be linked with the default mode network. Hmm. So it sounds as if daydreaming is kind of a it's kind of a mistake of cognition, right? A, a byproduct of it at any rate. Our predictive software to envision not only extreme cases of joy or horror, but impossible fantasies. Fantasies that may not even Im- involve us, you know?
1: But that's now that's considering standard daydreaming, which, as we've discussed, uh, is is extremely common. I mean, almost everybody does it. Just to cite a couple figures on that. For one thing, uh, in the book Daydreaming in 1966, Singer reported that 96 percent of normal non-clinical adults who were educated and living in the United States daydreamed at least every day. And so that kind of thing happens most when the person is alone, right? You're say laying in bed at night, getting ready to go to sleep and you start to daydream. You imagine, you know, scenarios, you imagine fantasies,
0: your mind wanders. Oh, wow. Well, mine, mine does it far more often than that. <laughs>
1: well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it, 96% of people at least do this once a day. Oh, OK. Um, and there there's some evidence that it happens even more often. There's a really good article in The Atlantic from 2015 that I'll come back to a few times in this episode called When Daydreaming Replaces Real Life by Jane Bigelson and Tina Kelly from – it's uh, April 29th, 2015. And the authors there speak to a University of Minnesota psychologist named Eric Klinger who's done a lot of important research on mind wandering, fantasy and daydreaming. And Klinger says that quote, "Daydreaming accounts for about half of the average person's thoughts, amounting to about 2,000 segments
0: a day." Oh wow, that's that's quite a lot.
1: Does that match with your number? I mean, try to think about it. how many times a day do you find yourself daydreaming?
0: I mean, the the like the really critical way of putting this is that we are off task like half the time, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you ever find yourself daydreaming while you're sitting right here in the podcast studio and I'm talking?
0: <laughs> uh, it's generally less daydream I feel like if my mind drifts during podcasting it's more like worry based, you know? Oh. Like I mean I guess Well, like, that's
1: daydreaming, yeah. yeah. It's a form, well, I guess. It's the
0: bad kind. Though. Yeah. So but I'm not I'm, less, I'm not going to think about space battles because ultimately our show is the space battle Joe. Like this this is a this the show is an escape. So
1: Robert, you're going to make me cry. <laughs>
0: Warming my heart over here. But the podcast booth is not airtight. The the worries uh, and the fears still manage to creep in.
1: <laughs> well, uh, obviously, there's no way to totally keep them out. And and that's one thing. I mean, one difference that I'm already seeing here is the difference between the idea of fleeting mind-wandering and moments of daydreaming. I mean, if, if a person is having about 2,000 segments of daydreaming a day – those can't last very long, just by the math of time.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's kind of like the money in the garbage can, like daydreams that are they're regular, but they're just so fleeting that you you don't. It's, it's almost like they're not even occurring. They're they're really just like background static. But when we think back to the story of M, or to some of the people that we're going to talk about in a minute.
1: Um, It's clear that they're not just having like a moment of a a fleeting daydream that comes for a second and then goes and then comes back a few minutes later and goes again. They are having prolonged, involved, continuous fantasies that spin out – that spin out stories that have some sense of continuity and that they engage in in a sustained way. So I think that's a kind of important and interesting difference, and maybe we can think more about that as we go on. But, I mean, one of the things we should take away from this is that everybody daydreams. Normal people do it quite a bit. There's nothing pathological at all about daydreaming. So there's really nothing abnormal about some amount of it, provided that it is really daydreaming and not some form of hallucination or something like that. Uh, I mean, normal daydreaming is a fantasy that the subject can clearly distinguish from reality. If you can't tell the difference between your fantasy and reality then something else is going on and you definitely have grounds for seeking a mental health professional's help
0: right the situation with M is not that she finds she thinks the daydream is reality yeah. she just prefers it to reality but if it is
1: really just daydreaming clearly delineated from reality it's also important that it doesn't occur in a way that's injurious to your way of life or to the lives of others around you and we'll come back to that in a bit. So one of the things that's interesting about the recent attention on maladaptive daydreaming is just the fact that we went so long with so little psychological recognition of the possibility that excessive daydreaming could be a disorder that caused suffering in people's lives probably the first major work on maladaptive daydreaming was in the journal of contemporary psychotherapy in 2002 uh, mentioned earlier by by Ellie Summer called maladaptive daydreaming a qualitative inquiry and Summer writes first about Freud's thoughts which we talked about earlier that daydreaming is this attempted solution to a deprivation state uh, that, you know, it's a form of wish fulfillment that's moderated by all these constraints that society puts on you. But then, of course, the idea developed. You've got Hartman in 58 saying that maybe fantasies serve some kind of actual adaptive function in the organism. Uh, You've got Eric Klinger, who we mentioned a minute ago, talking about how often people spend fantasizing uh, or how much time a day people spend fantasizing. Klinger said he found in his research that most fantasies, including both sleeping dreams and daydreams, primarily involve current concerns, you know, stuff that you're thinking about right now. So, like, you're probably more likely, you know, not dreaming about space adventures, but about what's in your email.
0: Yeah, or uh, perhaps, say, in, in your your evening plans, daydreaming about that, or a particular video game or film you're looking forward to, right? Yeah, or
1: I- interpersonal conflicts. That's a big one. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, how common is that dream of... I'm having an argument with Jeffrey finally, and here's what
0: I would really tell him. See, now this is an area where I feel like we're, it's still daydreaming, but one might easily categorize it more as simply worrying and rehearsing for strife. You well, know
1: that's a lot of what daydreaming is, I yeah. mean, like imagining scenarios is a way of thinking about what you should do.
0: But people, when when they talk when they talk about daydreaming, sort of that uh, that the very positive spin on it, you know, where they say, "Oh, that that Dan, he's such a he's such a daydreamer." Nobody's thinking, "Oh, that Dan, he's just always." Trying to think up uh, what he would say if he had the, the, the courage to, uh, you know, confront his boss or something. You right.
1: Know? Yeah, that's that's the good Dan. The Dan we like is the one who's daydreaming about swashbuckling on Mars yeah. and, and, you know, fly, flying around the ridges of Phobos. Mm-hmm. The, the Dan you do not like is the one who's thinking like, here's what I should have said to Jeffrey. I should have told him that. <laughs> But I know that is a common thing. I know people all the time are thinking about either what they would say if they had the guts to or what
0: they should have said in that argument they had yesterday or earlier today. And that at least can be in the short term maladaptive for a lot of us. You know, I mean, you have like something pisses you off the next day. It can be difficult to focus on the things you need to focus on or to be present when you need to be present. Yeah. Because you're just running the, the same uh, dialogue through your head. Well, you know, I I actually have a kind of
1: counterintuitive view about the virtues of venting. People often talk about how they had a bad day at work and they need to vent, you Mm -hmm. know, like I need to just let off all this steam and talk about it. I notice that in myself and in other people, venting very frequently does not alleviate frustrations but makes them worse. Because you just get to talking about it and then you keep talking about it and it makes you more obsessed with the issue than you would have been otherwise. (laughs) Well,
0: it makes me think of the the scene in Poltergeist 2 where um, the dad coughs up the awful Giger creature and then it crawls off. Like that's what I feel like sometimes venting feels like. It's like, oh, it's out of me. But now it's out of me and it's disgusting and horrifying. Way to go. Now it's under the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think if you're going to vent – I
1: think you should try to keep it short. You know, you should say what you got to say, but don't dwell on it. If really? you dwell on it, it's it's just worse for you. So pinch off that Giger monster when <laughs> you're venting, yeah. That's right, let her go. But then, okay, so back back to, to Summer. So Summer's chronicling the, the history of this idea before, before we get to maladaptive daydreaming itself. And in 1981 and 83, he points out how Wilson and Barber discovered there's this group of people that they class as uh, what are called fantasy-prone personalities who were avid daydreamers. And these people tended to, quote, live much of their time in a world of their own making, in a world of imagery, imagination, and fantasy. So these people sort of have the ability to, like, pick a Theme and not just think about it a little bit, but watch a scenario unfold in their imagination almost with the same kind of continuous quality as a person would watch a movie. They estimated that this group of fantasy-prone people with sort of high fantasizing capabilities is about 4% of the general population or up to 4%. Other studies on fantasy-proneness found somewhat similar numbers, maybe between 4% and 6% of people, but also found some interesting correlations. Fantasy-prone adults had often been encouraged to fantasize by a significant adult in their lives when they were younger – and also uh fantasy proneness is correlated with aversive childhood environments with some studies finding that uh though it's about 4 to 6% maybe in the general population it was at a rate of maybe 9 to 14% in people with a history of childhood abuse and this sort of goes along you know in a in a limited way with the freudian idea right that if you had some kind of aversive environment when you were a child. You had some kind of thing that you wanted to get through. You didn't want to be present in the unpleasant reality you were living. You would learn to come up with fantasy environments to cope. Hmm. And they also found that fantasizers were more prone to depression and other issues. Hmm. And we we should be clear that fantasy proneness is not necessarily the same thing as maladaptive daydreaming because there can be people who are
0: prone to fantasies, but it doesn't necessarily interfere with their lives and of course when we're talking about ad- adversary and and trauma i mean it's it's not necessarily just a, like a situation of like physical abuse right but just say um yeah you know problems at school or uh, we have we always have to remember how how uh difficult say a move can be uh, if if a family picks up and moves from one city to the other you know changing schools etc
1: yeah exactly uh, or social problems social isolation mm-hmm. um any kind of family problems i mean th- things like that can Drive a child inward and and send them to their inner resources. I mean, I know as you've probably described. I mean, you, you've had experiences like this, right? Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Like you know, moving from one school to another would be an example, or being in a school where you. I mean, basically all of middle school. I think most of us <laughs> can. Uh, middle school was definitely a time that drove me. Uh, Uh, inward in in a way that I I probably uh, never quite returned from.
1: Middle schoolers really are the worst. They are. That is like the worst age of, of humanity. Yeah. Now, another strain of research that emerged in the 20th century was that while healthy people use daydreaming to kind of work through problems or to enhance good feelings, distressed people can often enter into a kind of negative feedback loop with daydreams in a lot of the same ways that you could see other addictions coming into play in people's lives, where the excessive daydreaming causes them to feel weak or inadequate or generally bad about their lives for various reasons. They might be, you know, missing out on things that it's causing them problems, and then the problems in their lives are driving them to want to daydream more so they can escape
0: from their lives. It reminds me of the line in the the Warren Zevon song "Splendid Isolation," where he's saying, "Mickey, take my hand and lead me through the world of self." Whoa. What
1: album is that on? Was that the 80s?
0: Ooh, I'm not sure. When I got into Zvon, I was the greatest hits album. uh, Oh, I see. So I'm not exactly sure uh, where one finds that in its original form.
1: You're one of those Zvon posers. You're one of those Zozers. Sadly, sadly. So so clearly, there are different kinds of daydreaming, right? There are people with different levels of proneness. For some people, it helps. For some people, it hurts. And so Summer was trying to get a, a flavor of what this was like when people claimed to experience maladaptive daydreaming symptoms. And so he used a qualitative methodology to assess people who presented with what seemed to be negative patterns of daydreaming, which again, he coined this term maladaptive daydreaming. And so here, here's what he found. Common themes of daydreaming tended to be violence, idealized self, power and control, captivity, rescue and escape, and sexual arousal. And I think that's kind of interesting because it's strange how much it sounds like a list of the most common themes in adventure stories. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean basically the, that list could be the uh, the narrative flow of a swashbuckling tale. Uh huh. And then
1: common functions he identified uh, – apparently were disengagement from stress and pain by mood enhancement and wish-fulfillment fantasies. And then the other main one was for companionship, intimacy, and soothing. So there are all kinds of examples that he cites in his paper from the interviews. I just picked a couple of the more vivid ones to mention. Uh, Not all of them are this action movie-like, but I want to read one of the quotes. Quote, I used to imagine America and the West at war against the communist bloc. There were bombardments, shelling, marine landings, and hand-to-hand battles in which the communists would have many casualties. I imagine that my hometown is in ruins and under occupation, and I am fighting a guerrilla war with the underground. Sometimes I imagine myself fighting the guerrillas as part of the occupying forces. I often imagine myself as a soldier in battle against terrorists. I kill scores of them. The shooting fantasies
0: relieve my tension. Sounds like Red Dawn. Yeah, basically. And it also reminds me of these zo- the zombie apocalypse fantasies uh, we discussed earlier. Right, which can clearly
1: serve as a form of mental empowerment and escape.
0: Right. And then also, like a, both of these examples, a simpler worldview in which right. they're clearly defined uh, lines of, of good and bad, of, uh, of, of of enemy and ally. Here's another one. Quote, I am seated on the field of a football stadium surrounded with barbed wire. I am chosen by the prisoners to negotiate with the captors because she is known to be an emotionally disassociated person, hence not susceptible to psychological pressure. I am allowed to walk toward a desk with two chairs and sit in the bigger one. My opponent is putting forth his demands and threatens me with a gun. I pour myself a hot drink and sip from it with stable hands, smile at him and tell him that I am suicidal so he cannot threaten me with anything because I've got nothing to lose. He realizes he lost the bargaining and I give the sign for the insurrection to begin. From now on, it's like a Hollywood action movie with explosions, smoke and lots of blood, although I am wounded. I manage to free most of the prisoners, and I leave them to safety. I love this because I get a real uh, Garth Marenghi's uh, Dark Place vibe from it. Blood, blood. And bits of steak. <laughs> yeah. It's such a great, great show. Now, one of the really
1: interesting things that I've found when reading about maladaptive daydreaming that's reported in this study but then also in some others is that there are some common processes associated with with obsessive or maladaptive daydreaming. Uh, processes having to do with physical place and physical action, oft, often with an object in the hand. Robert, you mentioned earlier when you were a child that you would daydream with a rubber band.
0: Yes, in your hand, manipulating it with your hand. Always, I had to have a rubber band, and it you, it had to be green or red. Uh, it couldn't be just the brown ones because they weren't uh, they, they they weren't exciting enough. And also, this this is, I guess, maybe this sounds kind of strange, but the The red and green rubber bands were explosions. And I would also make explosion noises as explosions were needed in these imagined scenarios because apparently there were a lot of explosions.
1: Well, I mean, given our samples, sometimes explosions have got to happen. Yeah. Uh, I want to read a quote from one of the subjects in Summer's study. Quote, When I daydream, I often hold an object in my hand, say an eraser or a marble. I toss it in the air. This repetitive monotone movement helps me concentrate on the fantasy. Daydreaming is easier when I do this because I don't get distracted by other things in the room. At other times, I would go down to the basement and pace for hours while daydreaming. Mm. Also from the same patient, sometimes I would go into an orchard behind my house. Nobody comes there. I like the solitude because I could act the fantasies out loud. I can shout and scream there without shame. And these are commonly reported elements. Having a place to go to, being in physical motion while doing the daydreaming, like pacing or driving or something Mm -hmm. like that, and having an object to manipulate
0: in the hand. Why? That, That is so interesting to me. Why those things? Yeah, it really makes me think back on, on my, my own imaginative behavior as, as a kid, for sure. All right, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue and conclude our exploration of maladaptive daydreaming.
1: All right, we're back. Now, we mentioned earlier there's a good piece in The Atlantic about maladaptive daydreaming from 2015 by Jane Biggelson and Tina Kelly uh, called When Daydreaming Replaces Real Life that has some really good stories in it about what this experience is like. So I just wanted to read uh, maybe a couple quotes from this article of the author describing her own experience. She writes – When I was eight years old, I had a game I liked to play in my front yard in suburban New Jersey. My siblings were older and mostly out of the house. My parents worked long hours, and when there was nothing much to do, I'd walk in circles while shaking a piece of string, daydreaming about Little House on the Prairie or the Brady Bunch. One afternoon, I created an episode where, instead of going to Hawaii where dangerous spiders lurk, the Bradys went to the Bahamas, where I'd just spent a week with my family. Greg Brady met my teenage sister there, and they started dating. The show playing in my head was so detailed and entertaining that it lasted 45 minutes. Another day, I imagined myself as the actress who played the seventh Brady sibling. I met all the other young actors on set, and they commented on my cute outfit and amazing acting skills. Again, the the string in her hand, the object to manipulate.
0: Yeah, I totally get it. I, I it's hard. Again, it's it, it's difficult for me to put it in, into words, but I I know exactly what she's doing there. And the author goes on
1: to chronicle how with her experiences of of, of uh, obsessive daydreaming going on throughout her life, she eventually came to investigate this issue. Like she got involved in the subject of maladaptive daydreaming at the research level and she was a test subject in some research. And one of the things uh, she found was that – so she went in for some brain imaging for some fMRI – to look at what's going on in her brain while she's actively daydreaming. And one of the things they found was quote great activity in the ventral striatum, the part of the brain that lights up when an alcoholic is shown images of a martini. It's so it's literally setting off some kind of addiction response type feeling. Cheaper and healthier though, right? Probably healthier but not necessarily better for your life. I mean depending yeah, on true. what the circumstances are. I mean again, we, we certainly don't want to demonize healthy forms of daydreaming. But th- th- for many of these people, they end up seeking communities online for people who have the same issues as them or seeking clinical help because these people realize like this is taking up so much of my life. It is making me unable to live my life. It's interfering with my work, with my relationships. It's, it's gone beyond its useful role. One of the other things that's interesting that gets pointed out in this article uh, is the possible overlap between uh, maladaptive daydreaming and a disorder that's been known as stereotypic movement disorder, which involves repetitive motions of the body, kind of like what we've been talking about with like pacing or repeatedly um, moving a, you know an object in the hand. Like often uh, SMD seems to have something to do with flapping of the hands or movement of the arms or mm. something like that. And uh, one of the things the authors talk about is that um, th- there was a study that studied children who have stereotypic movement disorder, 42 children, and this was uh, in 2010. And when the researchers in the study asked the kids what they were doing when they were performing their repetitive motions, 83 of percent of the kids said they were repeating stories in their heads. So it sounds like there may be some overlap with this existing known condition. And again, I wonder, what is the neural link between the motions of the
0: body and the internal storytelling impulse? Well, it makes me think back to the uh, the more recent study uh, we talked about uh, discussing default mode network and the and mm. being on autopilot. Like maybe there has to be some sort of autopilot thing you're doing, and it could be Swimming or or pacing about, but also just manipulating an object. You're maybe you're not actually performing a task, but in in object manipulation or you know some sort of basic tool use, uh, it, maybe it's a necessary part uh, of that uh, network.
1: Yeah, that that could be. You know, one of the researchers in this article who gets quoted talks about how there's a possibility that. Daydreaming is somehow kind of like a fever. Like it is a natural defense mechanism. It's a cognitive defense mechanism for dealing with cognitive threats. Um but it can of course like a fever be harmful if it gets out of control. And for some people this defense mechanism while in some cases useful it does get out of control for them.
0: Well that makes sense too and you know when you think about the ways that uh that writers end up exploring, or not just writers, but any kind of uh, you know creative individual is doing some sort of art or you know, something they consider their art. You know, you end up processing a lot of your own uh, anxieties and fears and hopes and dreams through that art. Yeah. Um, so it it maybe is, and maybe that is just an, an something that's overlaid here and not part of the actual uh, um, you know, origin of the the impulse. But maybe there's a connection.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I often think with uh, with like works of fiction, it's funny when people ask authors like to interpret their own work in light of their biography. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear that. It's like, yeah. oh, you wrote this character in this novel who does this. What is that? You know, how does that relate to your life, this thing that happened to you? I feel like you've got it backwards. You should be telling the writer <laughs> how what they wrote explains their life. The writer doesn't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, like often the writer has to sort of have the realization like, oh, well, I guess I guess this story was about, uh, you know, my uh, substance abuse problem or what have you, you know? Mm-hmm. And speaking of
1: substance abuse, of course, I mean, one of the things that comes up again and again in these reports is that s- some of the people who experience maladaptive daydreaming compare it in way in some ways to an addiction. Going back to, you know, what some of the brain imaging seemed to show we mentioned a minute ago was that there is an addiction an addiction-like response in the brain, and then some people subjectively describe it as being like an addiction. One of the people quoted in the Atlantic article says, I felt the daydreaming was my main reality, and I'd only peek out into the main world now and then. It's like I'm an alcoholic with an unlimited supply of booze. I can't turn it off.
0: Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you don't have to worry about becoming physically ill from too much daydreaming or falling over from too much daydreaming, et cetera. Like, uh, there, it seems like there are fewer, obviously there are limits, but there are fewer hard limits mm-hmm. uh, involved there.
1: Yeah, that's true. But as we've seen, of course, it, it can be a strong interference with the kind of life people want to live. And that's the reason there are all these, you know, support groups and and uh, a push to get this more recognized mm-hmm. in, in psychiatric and psychological treatment communities now. And there are some treatments that, that seem to be Coming along. Uh, I mean, we're still in the early days of understanding maladaptive daydreaming as a psychological condition that that is treated in a clinical way. But uh, Summer in his 2002 article found that therapy helped some patients with aspects of their maladaptive daydreaming, uh, including reducing violent themes in the daydreaming and reducing the amount of time spent on it. Hmm. There are some drugs that in some cases have been found to work. Uh, Fluvoxamine, which is primarily used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, has apparently been used with some success. Other patients have had some success with SSRIs. One of the most interesting things I came across was also from that Atlantic article that uh, it referred to one person with maladaptive daydreaming who said, quote, I recently found that constantly writing wandering thoughts down or keeping track of them keeps you from falling into intense daydreaming so like the act of i mean this brings it back to the the freud issue with like creative writing versus daydreaming mm-hmm. the act of writing down your creative thoughts somehow makes them stop flowing so hard And I mean I know that from experience sometimes. It's almost like weaponizing writer's block against your own imagination.
0: Uh, You run the risk though then of – you you write down the ones that you think have promise and then – that uh, fill you with with joy on some level, but then you don't. Maybe you don't write down the ones that are like stupid and uh, and and awful. You know, the ones that are that are that fall into that special category of you know. Yeah, I feel like especially people who write up like horror or anything horror esque. You know, they're they're liable to turn their fears into something uh, useful, into something artistic an artistic expression of their fears. But what do you do when it's just something dumb? Like it's dumb and it's hurtful. Uh, a dumb and hurtful daydream that you've got to make like a special activity, I guess, of extracting it, of putting it on paper and then just wadding it up and forgetting about it. Well,
1: you know, I wonder, so there's the common experience of people sort of daydreaming by writing their lives into the existing plots and storylines of other TV shows and books Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I wonder how often this type of daydreaming phases into just writing fan fiction.
0: Oh yeah, because you're you're I can see that where that could that could occur because you're just so into this world, you know, and then you you can't help but want to become a part of it.
1: Yeah. I can't help but wonder in general if if some people who have this condition would find relief through just creative writing. Like if if you force yourself to write Kind of like this This last person was saying, if you force yourself to write your creative thoughts down, that might only – not just limit them but also give you something – productive you can do with that time you spent. So you don't just say, well, I spent three hours daydreaming today. I don't know, you know where that time went. You could say, I spent three hours
0: writing today. Well, not only do I think that's a great idea, but I totally support anything that will create uh, employment opportunities for my fellow creative writing majors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think we have to accept that not all writing can be writing for money, and that's okay. But you know, if somebody is trying to tell you to write, they should be paying you money. <laughs>
0: So let's bring it all back to, to good old Kirk Allen. Okay. I mean, ultimately, we just don't have a lot of hard facts about, about who he was or, or what he actually went through. But I wonder uh, how we can apply everything we've discussed in these two episodes to his case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if he would have directly fit this emerging diagnosis of the maladaptive daydreamer. Um, and I don't know. I, I wonder what we – what we will continue to learn about maladaptive daydreaming in the in the coming years, and whether that'll shed any new light on the Kirk Allen story.
0: Yeah, and of course, we have a lot of listeners out there who like to write in and share their experiences with us. And I know that all of you have experiences with daydreaming, and I imagine there are going to be some of you who have experience with maladaptive daydreaming or something that uh, in self analysis. Uh, feels close to what we've described here. So we would love to hear from you. And of course, we can keep things anonymous if, uh, if, you, would, uh, if you want to do it that way. Sure. Um, you know, so certainly just uh, you know, stress that point when you, uh, when you reach out to us. But yeah, we want to hear from everyone about your daydreams. If you have had maladaptive daydreaming, what have you found, if
1: anything, that has helped you reduce that down to a tolerable level or helped you get along with your normal life?
0: Yeah, let us know. And if you want to let us know, the first step in reaching out to us is heading over to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Dot com. That is fi- where you will find all the podcast episodes going way back to the very beginning, including those Alien Abduction episodes, those X-File episodes. They're all on there. You'll also find links out to our social media accounts. You'll find a tab at the top of the page for our store where you can get some sweet swag uh, that has our new updated logo on it or podcast episode-specific designs. A little bicameral mind here, a little uh, um, uh, black hole cinema right here. Uh, anything you could want. Get on a sticker, shirt, and uh, the proceeds, of course, support the show. And if you want to support the show in a cheaper fashion, just simply rate and review it wherever you have the ability to do so. That helps us a lot.
1: Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any other, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, uh, suggest a topic for a future episode, you can email us at blowthemind at I want to know what is the meaning of this